believe God has called us to impact the world, not just the world we see, but make a change around the globe. We get to live this out in Global Hope by equipping churches, providing clean water for those who have none, building up vulnerable women through discipleship and job skills training, support for the widowed and orphaned, educational opportunities for children, and medical care for the sick. And this week at Hope, these partners came together to share wisdom, experiences, passion, hardships, real-life challenges, and celebrations. Because of your faithful giving, Hope was able to host this event, and lives are being impacted around the world through the love of Jesus Christ. We would love for you to join us and be a part of what God is doing globally. And we had an incredible time celebrating with our mission partners this past week. And I mean, we had people here from India and Africa and Nicaragua and Haiti and just places all over the world together, uh, encouraging one another and helping us as we reach the triangle and change the world. And whatever campus you're at this weekend, many of these individuals are still in town. And if you see somebody that, that looks like they might be a missionary or they might be working abroad, or you're probably going to meet them at your campus, make sure you let them know how much you appreciate what they're doing to help us fulfill that vision of making a difference in the world. By the way, next Saturday morning at the Apex campus at 9 o'clock, I have my quarterly generosity breakfast. And this is not by invitation. This is, this is whoever wants to be there is invited to come. If you feel like it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you give, you feel like God has given you the gift to be generous. You just love to share what God has given you. This is a chance where I get together with whoever comes and I share what God is doing behind the scenes uh, in my life at Hope Community Church, and you have an opportunity to see if something kind of clicks with where God has placed your heart. For example, uh, it came to my attention that we had the opportunity to purchase a well drilling rig from Pennsylvania and have it shipped to Haiti to drill wells in Haiti. And I said, we don't really have a budget for this, but how cool would it be? And out of that breakfast, there were some people who said, man, I, 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 I want to make that happen. I want to make that happen. A lot of the money that we were able to bless the teachers in Wake County with came out of that breakfast where people were like, man, I want to make a difference, and God's giving me a little extra money. So as you're thinking about the end of the year, I don't ask you for anything. This is just short for breakfast. Let me share my heart, share some vision, and uh, let's get to know each other a little bit. So just go to the website. Uh, just say, I would like to be there next week, and there will be a reservation for you, and I will look forward to hanging out with you Saturday morning, 9 o'clock at the Apex campus. Now this weekend we're starting a brand new series that's based on the life of David, and I've said this before, that when you talk about David, you're talking about an individual who's mentioned more in the Bible than any other Bible character. And so it doesn't surprise me that it says that David was a man who was after God's own heart. And what that basically means is this, is David was not just interested in his plan, his desires, his will for his life. He was much more interested in God's plan, God's will, and God's desires. He wanted to pursue God's heart. It says that about David. It doesn't say it about anybody else in the Bible. And it not just says it once, it actually says it twice. You read it in 1 Samuel chapter 13. You read it again in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13. David was a man after God's own Heart. Now, as you know, I just got back from Israel, and I was there with 52 uh, people from our church family. In fact, I have a picture. We're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly where Jesus would have sat when he prayed for the city of Jerusalem. And now, if you ever want to go on a trip like that, you got to go. Uh, you got 18 months to plan, okay? Because we're looking at April of 2021, and you'll be hearing more about it. But it's one of those things that's just a life-changing kind of trip. But as you go around Israel, I'm telling you, David's thumbprint is all over the nation of Israel. 
In fact, I just made a list of some of the focal points uh, from the Bible, from the, from, from the land itself. There's the city of David. There's the star of David, the lineage of David, the seed of David, the house of David, the tabernacle of David, the offspring of David. It just goes on and on and on and on. And most of us, whether we've been to church a lot or not, we know some of the stories of David. We know the day that as a teenage shepherd boy, he went out into the valley of Elah and took on that big goober named Goliath and, and took him down. Remember, he killed the giant. Uh, we're familiar, unfortunately, when he was the king of Israel, that he saw Bathsheba one day and ended up having an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba got pregnant. And so David thought he could cover it up by having Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. And it just created all kinds of chaos. Unfortunately, we're familiar with that story. But in this series, we're going to be talking about some of the lesser known stories in the life of David. And I want you to know why this week's lesson from David's life is so important. And it's important because of this. A lot of us sitting here this weekend, whichever campus you're at, you are right on the verge, right on the edge of making a huge decision. And if you were to just step back for a second and be honest with yourself, you would say that this decision that you're getting ready to make is being driven not by facts, not by rational thinking. This decision that you're getting ready to make is based on your emotions. Maybe it's because of loneliness. Maybe you're just single and you are just flat out tired of being alone. You're tired of going home alone. You're tired of being left out. You're tired of feeling, you know, like you're feeling like a, a fifth wheel. So you're like, I, I'm going to make a decision that you normally wouldn't make, but it's driven by your emotions. Or maybe, maybe what's driving you is this feeling of rejection. Or maybe you've been hurt in a relationship and you have found a way, at least temporarily, to relieve some of that rejection, to, to get away from some of that hurt, but you realize sitting here this weekend, you're about to make a decision that deep down inside, you know, you know that you're going to regret for a long time. Or maybe you're here this weekend and you're just afraid. You're scared to death about a certain situation in your life. Maybe it's your finances, you know, and you're about to make a financial decision that you would normally never, ever make. In fact, if someone, if someone were to come to you with financial, for a financial device, you would warn them, don't ever make that decision. But under the circumstances, because your back's against the wall and because you're afraid of what's gonna happen if you don't maybe break some of God's principles, your emotions are telling you what to do and you're thinking about doing it. And if you find yourself in a situation like that this weekend where you're like, man, I'm getting ready to make a decision, and maybe it's more emotional than anything, I think maybe God's message to you this weekend is hit pause, stop, take a deep breath. Because I can see, we're going to see in the life of David, to act on our emotions pretty much ensures disaster is going to take place in our life. Now, as I said earlier, this weekend we're going to look at the story from the life of David, that's not one of the more familiar stories, but it's a story where we find this otherwise heroic person, David, in a time of transition. See, he's alone, and he hasn't been alone for a long, long time. In fact, David may not have been alone since early days when he was taking care of his father's sheep. Not only that, he's been rejected, and he's hurt, and he's not used to being rejected and being hurt. And not only that, he's afraid, and that's a weird emotion for a great warrior like David to experience. He's not used to being afraid. But as all of these emotions are swirling around in his life, he makes a terrible decision that's been recorded in God's word. So it, it, it's, it's a decision that stands as a reminder of what happens when a person is overcome by their emotions and allows their emotions to begin to control their behavior, their actions, their attitudes. Because when we do that, as we're gonna see in the process, not only does it wreck our lives, 
often it takes a lot of people down with us. So if you have your Bible this weekend, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. I want to give you a little bit of background setting the story up because it's the background that makes this story come alive. If you're familiar with the story of David, you know that he was anointed to be the king of Israel as a teenager. The problem was when David was anointed to be the king, there was already a king in Israel. It was King Saul who was the first first king of Israel, and we know that he reigned for 40 years. But by this time in Saul's reign, God has just absolutely had it with Saul. I mean, he's fed up to here with Saul, and he's decided he's got to go. So God speaks to his prophet who in this story, his name is Samuel. You probably heard of Samuel. And he says, Samuel, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Bethlehem. We were just in Bethlehem last week. How cool is that, right? We go down to the city of Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse, knock on his door. He's got a bunch of sons. Have them line up in the front yard. You're going to go and stand in front of each one of these sons, and I'm going to let you know as my prophet which one of these young men is going to be the next king of Israel. So sure enough, Samuel goes down to Bethlehem, knocks on the door of Jesse, says, hey, get your boys, line them up. So they bring them out of the yard. He walks and stands in front of each one of them. He looks them right in the eye, and he's like, hmm, hmm, hmm. And when he finishes, he's like, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. So he says, Jesse, is there any son that's not here? And he said, well, just the runt, David. I mean, he's out there taking care of the sheep. And Samuel's like, go get him. So they bring David in, and when Samuel sees David, he says, yep, this is the one. This is the next king of Israel. And he takes oil, and in a ceremony, he pours oil over David's head. He ceremonially uh, anoints him as the next king of Israel. So David's standing there with oil dripping off you know, the tip of his nose. But he's not an idiot. You know what David's thinking? He's thinking, thank you, I'm very honored. But don't we have a king? So Samuel has to explain, yes, we have a king, but God is fed up with this king. God's had it with this king, and you're going to be the next king, and at the right time, in fact, you're going to take the throne as the king of Israel. Now, not long after this event in the city of Bethlehem at the house of Jesse, not long after this pronouncement, is when David actually has the showdown in the valley of Elah with Goliath the giant. And he goes out with a slingshot, you know the story, and five smooth stones, and he, the first stone being, it hits right where it's supposed to. But I want you to file this away. That's not the end of the story. David then takes Goliath's sword, Goliath's own personal sword, and he uses it to cut off the giant's head. And David walks back into the city, like, look what I got. And people are going nuts. They're celebrating because this guy has been tormenting to them. Everybody's rejoicing. Everybody's singing and dancing and having the time of their life except Saul. And instead of celebrating, Saul is angry. Instead of happy, he's, he, he's jealous. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed a Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. I mean, who doesn't enjoy a good lute solo, right? And, and as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. That's cool. And David, his ten thousands. And when Saul heard that, he's like, hmm, that's 9,000 off. And he gets very angry. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now understand, Saul had plenty of opportunity to keep a close eye on David. For example, eventually David becomes the captain of Saul's army. Not only that, he marries one of Saul's daughters. 
Not only that, Jonathan, one of Saul's sons, becomes David's best friend. But over time, Saul's hatred for David grows and grows and grows because he knows that one day this young boy, this young man is going to replace him as the king on the throne of Israel. And finally it gets to the place where one day Jonathan finds David and says, hey dude, you got to get out of town because my dad is absolutely committed to killing you. So get the picture. Here we have David the warrior. (laughs) David the soldier, David the anointed future king. But now he's hurt. He's rejected. Because you know what? Regardless of how Saul felt about him, David loved Saul. But now Saul's turned his back on him. And for the first time in his life, now he's alone and he's scared. And he has to take off and run for his life. It's actually a journey that consists of 14 years of hiding in cities, hiding in mountains, hiding in caves, trying to keep himself from getting killed by King Saul. Now, let's pick up the story, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob. When I was just in Israel, I asked our guide, I said, can we go to Nob? I'm going to be talking about Nob. He says, uh, you probably don't want to go there. That's, that's in the Gaza Strip. I'm like, let's, let's don't go to Nob. But anyway, just do not have a bomb hit me today. But anyway, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, it says, David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, why in the world would Ahimelech ask him that question? That's kind of a weird question. Why are you alone? Why isn't somebody with you? You know why? It's because you never saw David alone. I mean, just read the story of David. He was always surrounded by an entourage of soldiers. They were known in the Bible. There were 37 men. They were David's mighty men. I mean, these were like black ops, rangers, seals, all wrapped up in one. I mean, they were the best of the best. And they never left David's side. They would die for David. And so all of a sudden, David shows up in the city of Nob all by himself, and this priest Ahimelech says, where is everybody else? Now, you answer the question, right? Most of the time, but not when your emotions are out of control. So what does David do? He begins to manipulate the situation, and he lies. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about this mission I'm sending you on. Well, that's a lie. That's not why he's there. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. That's a lie. And then what do you have on hand? Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now, I read this story because I love the character of David. I read this story and I'm thinking, David, what are you doing? David, you don't have to lie. David, you're a man after God's own heart. If anybody on this earth has had God's presence in their life, David, it's you. Why are you lying? Don't you remember the day you were taking care of the sheep and a lion came up to attack the sheep and God gave you the strength to kill the lion and then another day it was a bear and God gave you the strength to kill the bear and how you took out Goliath? Don't you remember all the victories that you had in battle? Did you know David as the captain of the army never lost a battle? He was undefeated. Like, David, why in the world would you take matters into your own hands? Why would you lie in this situation? Well, I'll tell you why he lied. It's because David's just like you and me. He's feeling rejected. He's feeling alone. He's feeling afraid. And he did exactly what we tend to do when we're struggling with those same kinds of emotions. He took matters into his own hand because, see, from his perspective, what he thought was going to happen, the end game, become the king of Israel, from his perspective, oh, it's crumbling is slipping away, and it causes him to panic. And so he begins to manipulate the situation, and he begins to lie, and he thought, you know what? I need to look after me, because obviously nobody else is going to look after me, including you, God. See, 
By the way, you ever been there? I got to look after me. Nobody else cares about me. We've all been there. I've been there. I mean, a few years ago, I was, I was hurt. I was hurt by some situations, and I, I was done. And I'll never forget, I was talking to Laura. We were coming back from Uganda and uh, sitting in New York, transferring through New York. And I said, I think I'm going to quit. And it's just all these emotions are swirling around. And she said, I'll tell you what, hon. If you quit, I will support you 100%. If you stay, I'll support you 100%. But she said, let me remind you of one thing. She's really good at this. She said, 25 years ago when we prayed and asked God, to, when we knew God was leading us to California to start, from California to North Carolina to start Hope Community Church, we prayed and we asked God, to, if we do this, if we pick up our kids, if we move across the country, if we start life all over again, we pray, God, would you allow us to finish there? And she said, unless you think God's finished with you, you need to get your head back in the game. See? But I will tell you, when I was going through all of that, <laughs> you know, we were just singing that worship song, yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy. Yes, I will praise your name. Mm-mm. I mean, it's easy to come to church and sing stuff like that, but when you feel like, God, you don't really have my back anymore. See, we've all been there. And you know what David had forgotten? And men, let me just say, we really kind of struggle with this. He had forgotten that the God who chose him as a nobody, a shepherd boy, to become a somebody, the king of a nation, that same God had the power to see it through to completion. But when things stopped working out the way David thought they should be working out, because we always have a plan, we think it's God's plan, right? When it wasn't working out the way David thought it was going to work out, he, he panics and he thought, if I don't get control of this mess, if I don't get control of this situation right now, it's history. It's over. The dream is dead. And guess what? We do the very same thing. And do you know why? It's because our emotions lie to us just as they lied to David. And so when we're having feelings of loneliness or rejection or fear, see, our emotions tell us, you know what? If God was really with you, you wouldn't be feeling this way. They say things like, if God was really with you, you know, then why do you feel so alone? If God is really with you, why, why do you feel so rejected? If God is really with you, why do you have so much fear? And our, our emotions go to work and they weave a very, very convincing tale and we believe it. We believe, oh, I really am losing it all. The dream is about to die. So what do we do? We panic and we take matters into our own hands. Now, let's be honest. Isn't it easier, have you found this out? Isn't it easy to trust God when you don't have much to trust him for. I, I deal a lot with young pastors, and sometimes I'm envious of them, especially if they're starting churches, because there's something about starting out in the early days. Man, you got nothing except faith. So you walk forward with big faith, big faith, like, yeah, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But let's do it, because we think that's what God wants us to do. It's crazy. But then you know what happens? In every church in America, this is not just a hope thing, when you get big, you got to manage it. You got to control it. Don't do anything stupid, you know. And you don't take big risk. You take very low risk. And I got to be honest with you. Many times we stop walking by faith. I mean, I think back to when Laura and I were younger, right? I remember when we first got married. It was easy to trust God with everything because we didn't have anything. I mean, we were so poor. And we were able to buy this house because Laura's dad 
retired early, and he was flipping houses back in the late 70s in Southern California when, 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 when there was no HGTV, okay? I mean, I think he was the cutting edge of that. And he had bought this house, and I saw it one time. And when I went to see it, a guy literally took a light bulb from one room to the next room, screwed it in. Oh, this room has lime green carpet. Okay, let's go to the next one. Oh, that has royal blue carpet. That's pretty. Let's go to the next. Oh, that's got burnt orange carpet. You know what I mean? It was just a dump. No self-respecting person would live in this house. Not only that, all the furniture was junk. I mean, not only am I a new youth pastor, I don't make enough money, so you know what I do on the side? Repossess furniture and cars for a finance company. I mean, how is that to teach a teenager on Sunday to love the Lord and repossess his dad's car on Tuesday? How cool is that, right? Right, I had him come from every angle, right? But we only had a couch in our house because I repossessed it from a family right before Christmas, and the finance company didn't want it back, so they sold it to me for practically nothing because they didn't have anything to do with it. We, Laura drove a $100 Vega. Some of you remember what a Vega is. The next-door neighbor had a Vega. He said, it's not safe for my teenage son to drive. I'll sell it to you for 100 bucks. I thought, Lark can drive that. That's no problem. I don't see any problem with that, right? <laughs> right. But we were so poor. Now, I just got into ministry, and I, I hang around pastors, and it always bother me because they seem so spiritual. And I'm like, I don't, I'm just not like that. I was a PE major, you know, and you know, they were just saying God all the time and stuff like that. And, and I'm like, I got to start acting more like a, a pastor. And I'd, I'd seen some of these guys, you know, maybe at ministerians and stuff. And I'll never forget one day. I'm like, God, I just want to be used by you. God, I, look, God, I just want to surrender all I have to you. And I'm sure God looked at what I had and said, why don't you just go ahead and keep it? I, I don't really have any use for any of that mess, right? Say, <laughs> so, you don't worry about that stuff when you're young. But you know what I've learned? I've learned that it's a lot harder to trust God now that he's blessed me with some stuff. In other words, it's much more difficult to trust God to maintain my life than it is to trust God to arrange my life. And it's because, see, when he blesses us, and then it feels like the bottom's starting to fall out, I think there's something that we all start to believe. God, I, I, I know that you did a good job of getting me where I am. But God, you're just not doing a very good job of keeping me where I am, right? You ever feel that way? So God, I need to get involved here. I need to take control. I need to do something. And we shift gears instead of trusting God, obeying God, patiently waiting on God. What do we do? We panic and we go into action and we take matters into our own hands. And when that happens, I'm telling you, the result is never going to, to be positive. Now let me show you how it happened to David. While this little interchange is going on between David and Ahimelech and Nob, there happens to be a guy just hanging around by the name of Doeg, D-O-E-G. I guarantee you none of you have a son named Doeg, but that's a great name. And Doeg, he witnesses the whole thing go down. He witnesses David coming in town without his entourage. He notices him talking to Ahimelech. He sees Ahimelech give him food to eat. Now, later on, a few days later, Doeg is down in Gibeah with his good friend, King Saul. And it's the day that King Saul pronounces, David was my friend, David was the captain of my army, now David is my enemy, and whoever can give me any information about David and his whereabouts, I will reward that person greatly. So Doeg spoke up. By the way, I, I checked it out. Uh, Hebrew, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Do you know what the Hebrew name Doeg means? It means cared for. So Doeg hears this and he thinks, I'm going to live up to my name. I want to be cared for. I want to be rewarded greatly. So he said, I got some information. I was just down in Nob on a business trip and I saw David. 
And I saw him talk to this priest by the name of Ahimelech, and I noticed that Ahimelech was helping him out. So Saul hears this, he gathers his army, gathers some troops and soldiers, and he heads, he heads to Nob. He finds Ahimelech, and he wants to know, why did you help David? Why did you do that? Now, I want to pick it up. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? Like, why wouldn't I help David? He's the captain of your army. He's your son-in-law. He's your son's best friend. Who's as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing. They didn't know that. Yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Good for them. The king then ordered Doeg, you, you want to be cared for? You turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. In other words, 85 priests. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and its sheep. But one son of Ahimelech named Abiathar escaped fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. And look what he says to Abiathar. I am responsible for the death of your whole family. It's on me. It's my fault. By the way, do you know what the three hardest things to say is? One, it's my fault. Two, I need help. Three, Worcester sauce. Those are the three hardest things to say. In case you're slipping away, I need to get you back. But anyway, David says, it's my fault. This is all on me. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine the emotion of knowing that you caused 85 priests and an entire city to be destroyed? And it's because when you weren't happy with how God was handling things, you panicked and you took matters into your own hands instead of waiting on God. See, that's exactly what happened because David forgot God is with me. God is in control. I don't need to be afraid. God is with me and I can trust him to maintain what he arranged. But instead of claiming those promises, everybody around David suffered because David panicked and decided to take matters into his own hands. And see, we, we read this story, we can't even begin to imagine these kinds of consequences. You know what? I see this kind of stuff almost weekly. In fact, I can pretty much say there's hardly a week that goes by that I don't see, like I have a front row up close and personal seat of men and women making bad decisions and choices and panic and not trusting God and in the process ruining their lives. And do you know what I hear more often than not? People will say things like, you know, when it came to trusting God in this area of my life, I just couldn't do it. I was talking to a guy one day that came in to tell me that he had been having an affair and his wife found out. And, and uh, I'm like, wow. So we're talking. I said, why did you have an affair? And they've been married for years. He said, well, and he started telling me about some of the problems they'd had in their marriage. And basically what he said, I just got to the point I didn't think God would actually be able to 
fix it. So I decided to do this. Or maybe you're single. Maybe you've been through a painful divorce. And you meet another single that's been through a painful divorce. And regardless of what the, God's word says about sex outside the context of a, a committed marriage relationship, you decide, you know, let's just live together. Who wants to go through the pain of another divorce? By the way, the fastest growing rate of people living together is people 55 and older. Because who wants to go through a divorce again? But instead of just trusting God that he would, if you're patient, bring the right person into your life that's going to fulfill what you're actually looking for in a mate, you're like, well, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just do some shortcuts here. It's almost like, you know, I'll trust God with a few prayers here and there, but you expect me to trust God with my love life? Or you expect me to trust God with my finances? Mike, that was easy when I had $100, but I got a lot of money now. I don't know if I can trust God with a whole lot of money. See? And time and time again, just like with David, when overcome with these emotions, loneliness, rejection, fear, we panic and we take matters into our own hands. And just like with David, when we do that, we invite disaster, not just on us, but on all of those around us. I'll give you an example. Some of you here this weekend, you came, you came from a home where maybe your mom or your dad were... They were overcome with some kind of emotion they didn't know how to deal with, but it led to them you know, moving into a relationship and maybe having an affair, and it just blew up your family. And that decision that your mom or your dad had, it, it, it's had a negative impact on your entire life. But you're sitting here this weekend, some of you, maybe, and you're considering doing the exact same thing. Or maybe your financial life is heading down the tubes, Right? And so you're just kind of tempted, like, uh, I'm just going to kind of violate God's principles here for how I'm supposed to handle my finances. And you're thinking, you know, if I don't do something, you know, it's just never going to fix itself. It's never going to get better. Some of you are, you are overcome with loneliness. And I, and, I, and I try to understand that. But because of your loneliness, you're tempted to move in a relationship. You know it would be a compromise. You know it would be settling for something less than God's best. You're like, yeah, I, can't. I found this guy, and he's not exactly what I was looking for. He's about four inches outside the circle of what I was really praying for, you know. But he's available, you know, and he's got all his teeth, and, and you know, right? I think there is teeth. We'll see at night. But uh, some of you guys, are. Well, there's a girl at work, and, whoa, she's a fox. She's not a Christian, but she's a fox. You can become a Christian. You can't just become a fox. And you're just thinking, I, I, I'll get her to be a Christian, right? See, but deep down inside, you know there's a lot about this person that's just not right. You, you know it's not what you've been holding out for. You know it's not exactly what God has been, you've been praying to God to bring into your life, but you're just so lonely. But I'm telling you, to move in that direction and take matters into your own hands to say, God, you, you just haven't come through for me. God, you just haven't provided for me. I've got to get involved. You're just inviting disaster into your life. So I think that God says to all of us through this example of David, what I arrange, and remember, he has a plan for your life, Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans for a future. God is saying, what I arrange, I can sustain. What I plan for your life, I can make sure that it happens. I can see it through to completion. And in this process, there may be times where it looks like my blessings are faded. But God says, I want you to know, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still with you. Now, <clears throat> there's a part of this story that I intentionally skipped over because I wanted to save the best for last, okay? Do you remember when David showed up in Nob? He was tired, he was hungry, he was feeling all alone. And Ahimelech gives him the food. And then after David eats, he says, you know what else you could help me with, Ahimelech? I could really use a weapon. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. 
Ahimelech should have gotten a little suspicious at this point. I mean, how can you be the captain of the king's army and bodyguard and not have a weapon, right? And Ahimelech's like, David, I'd love to help you out, but man, I'm a priest. I mean, we don't use weapons. We don't have any weapons. And then he thinks, but wait a second, wait a second. There is a sword. It's down on Main Street at the museum, the Museum of Nob, right there. David, we got Goliath's sword. David, we've got the sword you took from Goliath, the sword you cut his head off with. And David says in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 9, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now, let me just say, this is one of those God moments that we all have in our lives where God's trying to get us slow down, pause, pause, hit the button, don't go forward, but David missed his moment, see. It was as if with David holding this huge sword, it was as if God was speaking to him saying, David, don't you remember? Don't you remember what this sword represents? Think about it, David. It represents the futility of a giant going up against my power. It's a reminder that, yeah, David, you may feel all alone, but you're not alone. David, this sword you're holding, it's a reminder of what you can do when I'm with you. I mean, David, do you remember that day? Not a cloud in the sky, David. Do you remember walking out, David, in the Valley of Elah with a slingshot? David, you look ridiculous. But David, it was our finest moment. It's our finest moment. And I'm still with you. Nothing has changed. See, David missed it. He missed that moment. And disaster followed. And this weekend, just like with David, I believe that God is offering all of us a reminder, you know? I think we stand exactly where David stood. Many of us, we kind of stand at a fork in the road. And they're at this crossroad, and we got to make a decision. We, we can either do a, the right thing, God's way, or we can make the wrong choice. And I think there's always that struggle. There's a part of us, we really want to do what's right, but our emotions are saying, man, if you don't do what's wrong, if you don't go this other, if this one time, if you don't make this exception, it's all over for you. Your life, this situation is out of control. you got to take charge. But I think when we get to those crossroads, God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember. Remember. Don't you remember how I intervened in your life as a child, as a teenager? Don't you remember how I intervened in your life as a college student? Don't you remember what I did in your marriage years ago when things were falling apart? I'm still with you, you know. Don't you remember that time you thought you were going down the tubes financially, but you were obedient and you trusted me with the area of your finances and I met your needs? I'm still with you. Are you really going to take matters into your own hands? Don't you remember where it got you last time? You're considering having an affair. Don't you remember where it got you last time? No. You're considering getting into a relationship that you know deep down inside you shouldn't be in. Don't you remember where that got you last time? Or, or you're considering a risky financial move that could not only take you down, take your entire family down with you. Don't you remember where that got you last time? I mean, it's as if God says, I, I, know, I know what your emotions are telling you but I'm still with you, see? I'm still in control. Nothing has ever changed. So here's the question I want to leave you with as you think about your life 
in your circumstances. If you knew for sure. I mean, if you had 100% absolute certainty that God was with you and that he hadn't lost interest in what was going on in your life right now, the circumstances that you're working through in your life right now, and, and if you really knew with 100% certainty that if you just would be patient, that in God's time he would show up and he would intervene and he would resolve your situation. If you were 100% certain of that, what would you do? What would you do? Well, my advice to you as you stand at the crossroad is do that. Do that. Because at the end of the day, we either trust God and we believe or we trust our emotions. I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. What's going on in your life? What decision are you rushing into that you know that if you don't take your time, if you don't think this through, if you don't wait on God, you know that it's going to be a disaster? I think God's advice to you would be hit pause and remember. Look back at those times in your life where maybe it was at the last moment where God showed up. And God intervened, and God rescued you, or he prepared the way, or he opened the door at just the right moment. He says, remember, remember, just as I was with you then, I'm with you now. I haven't gone anywhere. Just because it's not working out the way you thought it was supposed to work out, don't trust your emotions. Trust me. Believe me. Father, give us the courage, calm our fears, our loneliness, our sense of rejection, and remind us that you are a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And if we climb to the highest mountain, you are there. And if we descend into the belly of the earth, you are there. Wherever we go, you're with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Help us to learn this life lesson from David that could radically change our lives if we could trust more in you and depend less on our emotions. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 